Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. We'll be in Acts chapter 7. Glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts where we are just walking through uh, the book of Acts piece by piece. And so we are at the part of the story in Acts where Stephen, uh, the first martyr, gets arrested and then gives a speech and gets killed. Um, before we get started, a couple announcements this morning. Um, the first is that uh, some of you are aware of Camp Blessing Texas. This is a camp that serves children with special needs. Um, so one of the only camps in the world that does what they do, um, which is take children with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, autism, and bring them for a week, uh, overnight summer camp, and then it's just summer camp for them. Horses, archery, zip lines, anything you can think of summer camp, canoeing, they do it there. Um, and we have had the pleasure of partnering with them for the past few years. Uh, and so want to thank you. We're sending a gift right now over Andrew Dollars up to them um, this week. And I was up there this past week speaking for them, and they wanted me to send their thanks down to you guys. So thank you. Um, we are open up. Again, if you want to donate today, if you feel led to give, um, we can add that, and we'll send it up. We'll send the check up next week uh, as I go up there. So one, thank you. Two, know that this week they started camp on Wednesday. This week there are children uh, up um, in East Texas. Uh, being loved on and, and hearing the gospel and being um, played with and just doted on and being enjoyed because of the money that you guys uh, give to them. So thank you for that. Again, if you want to donate, we'll, we'll still take that this morning. I have never turned down money. Um, so last announcement, we'll get started. On the 24th, we will be having our combined baptism service, okay? So make plans to be here for that. We'll meet here at 1045, have a short service, and we'll head over to a local house have the baptism, have a big party, okay? Um, so we've got a few people being baptized. Make plans to be there to celebrate with us. All right, let's get after it. We're in Acts chapter 7, and if you remember from last week, um, we took two uh, chapters and we kind of divided it up into two. And last week we talked about Stephen and kind of the story and how he gets arrested and how he gets killed and kind of the witness that he has. And if you remember, we skipped over his speech. Well, today we're going to jump back in in Acts chapter 7 and look at his speech. So I'll recap you on the story of Stephen. If you weren't with us um, last week, Stephen gets chosen uh, to help distribute some bread in the early church to take care of the widows. He has this incredible teaching and healing ministry. He gets arrested by the Jewish authorities. He gets brought in front of a big trial to them. He gives a long speech, and then at the end of the speech, he dies. And he's the first Christian martyr. He's the first person to die um, because of their belief in Jesus. And with his death starts this kind of scattering of the church. And the mission of God is going to start to accelerate after Stephen's death. Um, now, we skipped over his speech, and it's found here in chapter 7. Um, you'll note that this is the longest speech in the book of Acts. Uh, so Acts is full of different speeches by the early Christians. This is the longest, um, probably denoting importance here. Um, and if you'll look in verse 51... Look at his conclusion for his speech. You'll remember the charges brought up against Stephen were that he was talking bad against the temple and against the law. And this is what the Jewish authorities are upset about. They bring him up. He gives a very long speech. And then in verse 51, here's his conclusion. We'll read the conclusion, jump back and work through it, okay? He says, you stiff-necked people. You can see why he got killed, okay? He's not, he's not making friends here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. With that conclusion, they rushed forward and they kill him, okay? And so he gives this really long speech. And what's interesting is he doesn't necessarily defend the charges brought against him. He doesn't defend the charges that he was talking about about the temple or about the law. 
And he doesn't even take this time to talk that much about Jesus. The whole speech is an extended attack against the people holding him on trial, which would lead him up to this conclusion, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You stand in a long line of people who have been on the wrong side of history, who have been opposing God. So what I want to do this morning is work our way back through the speech, see how Stephen kind of sets this up, and then I want to do this. I want to let Stephen's accusation come against us. Because we'll see, I think there's a dangerous temptation for us to be resisting the Holy Spirit without knowing it. And I don't, I mean, at the, the bottom line, I don't want us to find ourselves on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of God's movement here, which is what Stephen's saying to these Jewish authorities who had good intentions, who thought they were defending what was true and right. Stephen goes, unfortunately, you resisted the Holy Spirit, you've missed out, and now you're battling God himself. So let's see how Stephen gets to that conclusion, and then let's lay it up against us, okay? So go back to the beginning of chapter 7. Stephen, again, he doesn't defend necessarily the charges brought against him, and he doesn't necessarily talk a whole lot about Jesus. What he does is he starts to tell the story, the story of God and his people. And he says, if you tell the story in a certain way, you'll see that you're on the wrong side. You're standing in a long tradition of people who misunderstood and missed out. So, so look how he starts here in chapter 7. The charges are brought against him in verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen says this, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Okay, put on your thinking cap for just a second. We're going to come through this speech. Some of it's going to be dense. We'll get to the end, okay? And then it's really going to hit home with us if you can track along with what we're doing, okay? So here we go. He starts out the story of God and his people with Abraham. And a quote from Genesis 12, which is where God calls Abraham. Abraham is the beginning of God's plan for salvation. So you've got Genesis 1, God creates everything. In Genesis 3, um, humankind rebels against God. The next few chapters, sin and death are kind of spiraling out of control. Things are getting really messy and really ugly on God's good creation. And then chapter 11 ends with the people of the earth being scattered all over the earth. And they're confused and they're hurt and they're cursed. And the big question in Genesis is how is God going to respond to this? He's going to destroy them all. He's going to have a big showdown with them. Is he upset? What's he going to do? And what he does in Genesis 12 with no transition is he comes to Abraham and goes, You, I want you, and I'm going to make a family out of you. And Genesis 12, you can read it 1 through 3. He says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. So, so catch this. God's plan to bring wholeness and salvation healing, rescue, freedom. His plan to bless all peoples of the earth who, because of sin and death, have been cursed is to get a people together, to create a community, to bless them, and then send them out to be a blessing. If you can grasp that one idea, the Bible as a whole will make sense to you. 
So if you ever wondered why there's all these weird stories in the Old Testament that don't seem to be connected, how do they have anything to do with Jesus, things like that, it's this. It's, it's the story of how God is doing this, how he's calling together a people and then sending them out to be a blessing. This is the meta-narrative of the scriptures. It's the big story that all the little stories fit themselves into. And God is very consistent with this plan. He's never deviated from this. He's called together a people. I will bless this people and they will go out and bless the people around them. Notice how Acts starts, if you remember back from Acts chapter 1. The early Christians have been redeemed by Christ and his cross. And then he does what? He sends them out. Go be witnesses. It's almost like a restart of Genesis 12. I'll bless you and you will go take the blessing to others. This is God's plan for wholeness, for salvation, for freedom. This is his plan to bring all of his goodness and his grace to his people. And remind me, or let me remind you, it continues to this day, okay? He's very consistent with his plan. Today, if you are a Christian, you've been called into a community, you've been blessed, and God desires to go spread that blessing through you. Starts all the way back with Abraham. So Stephen goes, okay, let me show you how you're on the wrong side of history. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. God called a certain group of people. He blessed them and said, go be a blessing. But as we'll see, from the very beginning, there was always opposition to God's plan. There are always those who stood in opposition to it. So so let's keep reading here in verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and his fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver for the sons of Amor at Shechem. Notice um, Stephen starts to build up a few themes that are going to recur here, okay? The first is that God's leaders are being rejected. Joseph, whom God had chosen to lead his people is what? Sold into slavery by his people. But Joseph, when he gets to Egypt, is blessed. God rescues him. God allows him to rise um, in power in Egypt. And then what does Joseph do with that blessing? Does he hoard it to himself? When his family comes in need, does he go, oh, remember when he sold me into slavery? Goodbye. No, he goes, I've been blessed and given power. Why? So that I can give it to you. So that I can be a blessing. Stephen says, from the very beginning, here's a picture you had. God is moving throughout creation, calling to himself a people, sending them out with blessing, and there are some who are opposing his movement. There are some who are resisting it. Okay, now let's keep reading. Um, Verse 17. But as the time time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Okay, many of you know the story. Okay, they get um, to become slaves in Egypt. Moses is born. He rises in power in Egypt. Interesting enough, Moses is the only baby in the Bible called beautiful multiple times. So you think your baby's cute. It might be, okay, but not on Moses' part. Little baby model Moses. 
Verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Watch what happens here in verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them what? What's the word? Salvation. Interesting. We, we think of salvation, just that word, okay, as super spiritual. So we get to go to heaven, that's salvation, leave our bodies behind. But we've mentioned here before, salvation is a very holistic word. It's rescue. It's freedom. It's liberation. And Moses is confused here because he, he thought the Israelites would have known. He was trying to fight for them. He was trying to help them. He was trying to free them from the oppression of the Egyptians. Verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this report, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Once again, you've got a leader raised up by God, Moses, who wants to rescue his people. And he's what? Being oppressed. He's being resisted. Who made you ruler and judge over us? So he goes into exile. Now, 30. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. By the way, you can read the story at the beginning of Exodus. One of the most beautiful parts of the scriptures, I think. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. I mean, they're just really being hammered. And they're crying out, and they're confused, and they're yelling at God, where has he been? He's forgotten about us. And, and there's just this real poetic sentence in Exodus that says, God saw, and he knew. And then a plan starts. So they're in Egypt being oppressed. God sees, and he says, now come, I will send you, Moses, to Egypt. Verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Sounds a lot like Jesus here. The one who was rejected, but who has been sent to you to be ruler and redeemer. Again, here's the basic story Stephen's trying to build up. God is bringing leaders to bless his people so that they can then go out and be a blessing. But there are people who, for whatever reason, end up on the wrong side of that. End up resisting what God's doing in the world. Okay, And so Stephen's going to spell out some things that happen, again, keeping um, going through history. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with, our and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. This is talking about the law that Moses got. Now, watch what happens, verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from before the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away, gave them over to the worship 
of the host of the heavens, as is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay, so Stephen here talks about the most insane thing that's ever happened in the history of God's people. This is the golden calf episode, okay? You can read about it in Exodus 32. Moses um, saves God's people. He brings them out of Egypt. He frees them. And they get across to their side, and Moses goes up to speak with the Lord. And he's going to get the law. He's going to get the kind of the rule book for how to live as God's saved people. And while Moses is up there, they get bored, the people of Israel. And they decide to build a golden calf to worship. Seriously? Really? They, they, they build a golden calf to worship. Now, it's interesting. You can go read it in Exodus 32. I, I had never noticed this until earlier this year. But they actually say about this golden calf, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. So if you remember the story, these people literally had ten plagues happen right in front of them. Had the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not a golden calf, had Lord, all caps, defeat single-handedly the biggest, most powerful empire on the face of the earth. Days later, they make a calf. Not a lion or a bear or something cool, like a baby cow of gold. They worship it and say, look what brought us out of Egypt. If you'll remember in Exodus 32, you can go read it. Um, Moses goes mom on them. Okay, he gets back. He's real upset. God wants to kill everybody at first. Moses and God have a powwow, and they decide to compromise. Um, but, but Moses comes down, and the only way I can try it is he goes mom on them. I mean, you've got to imagine how frustrated Moses is. But he comes down, and he doesn't, like, hit them, and he doesn't just yell at them. He does this. Melt it and drink it. He makes them drink the golden calf, okay? Put that in your mouth, and you taste that, and you realize what you have done. <laughs> So they melt it and they drink it. And Moses now gets to um, be familiar with his job, which is the most miserable job in all of history, which is to lead this group of people who's going to constantly forget what God has done for them and what God is doing through them. So later on, they get miraculous food and they complain about it. I mean, just over and over and over again to the point where God kills all of them in the wilderness and they never get to the promised land. Notice here who, and this is a, a big theme for Stephen, who is it that's opposing God's plans? Who is it that's resisting what he's doing in the world? Is it the, the evil Egyptians who have nothing to do with God? No, it's, it's his people. It's those who think they're on the inside. In fact, if you want to be really um, scared this morning, think about this. The people who have fallen here in the wilderness who built a golden calf are people who just experienced miraculous things. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews um, in chapter 3 and 4 talks about kind of this period of time and, and draws out some warnings and implications for us. And he asks three rhetorical questions in Hebrews that are, that are really, I mean, just fear-inspired. He says, who was it who disobeyed and God killed in the wilderness? Was it not those who walked through a sea? Was it not those who received the law? Was it not those who saw the ten plagues happen right in front of them? They thought they were on the inside. But they started worshiping idols. They started to find themselves on the outside. They started to find themselves not obeying the law, okay? Uh, so this is a big point for Stephen. Um, he's going he's gonna to say everyone's open to resisting the purposes of God. Remember, what's God doing? Well, he's building a people and sending them out to bless the world. 
And there are different people and different things that oppose that in creation. But the dangerous thing is that sometimes throughout history, people on the inside have wound up opposing God's plan, have wound up without knowing it on the wrong side of history, opposing the very God that they think they're serving, that they've even just experienced miraculously. I would even say the danger might be the greatest for people like that. I mean, you see this in the Gospels. When Jesus comes in the Gospels, he's most violent in his words towards the religious people, towards people who think that they're on the inside, who are stuck in their ways and don't realize what God is doing here. And so Stephen's telling the story, and he's going to set it up for them to see. They think they're on the inside, but they're on the outside looking in. And they found themselves standing against the one that all of the Old Testament was pointing towards. And they don't even realize it. Someone asked me this question earlier this week. I thought it was an interesting question. Um, if, if Jesus was here physically among us, how would our church just receive him? Let me, let me ask this question. Would you crucify Jesus? Fun stuff. Just lighthearted Sunday morning stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if our churches would be all that receptive to this guy. He came in, he shook everything up, and he loved people no one else was loving. He crossed every boundary you could imagine. And the people who consistently hated him were you and I. We'll talk about how you get to that point, okay? The hope is we can avoid stuff like that. We can avoid finding ourselves, as he says, stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit. But for Stephen's point, notice throughout history, people have thought they were on the inside, but have found themselves radically on the outside. God's doing something powerful in creation, building a community, sending them out to be a blessing. But sometimes people on the inside of that community find themselves really to be on the outside, to be resisting the Holy Spirit. So we keep reading. Now he's going to tackle the temple. And this is probably what gets him killed here. He says this, Our fathers, notice it's all our fathers at this point. He'll switch this. But our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Um, now, notice this. The tabernacle, that's what he's talking about, this tent. It's like the um, portable temple, pre-temple. Okay, it's just this tent that you could pack up and go. Um, Moses built it off of a pattern that God had shown him. And so throughout... Uh, Israel's history, sometimes they get confused about this. And there's always this tension about God does live in a temple, but he can't be contained by human hands. Um, and so there's a lot of, of continuity between Stephen's speech and the book of Hebrews, which in fact some have suggested maybe Stephen wrote the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews will make the same point, right? That when Moses built the tabernacle, he was building a model of heaven. And so that's not the real thing, right? A model airplane is great, but it's not the airplane. If you really want to fly, you get in the actual airplane. And Hebrews is going to go, well, we had this model, and that's, that's great and good, but now the actual thing is here. Now the actual temple has come and lived among us. Now we can be the temple where God dwells. And so he says, um, Moses, he, he built this tabernacle according to the pattern he had seen. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua into the promised land when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? 
Did not my hand make all these things? Here's what got Stephen killed at this moment. He didn't even have to keep going. He just said that when the Jewish Christians, or when the Jewish leaders here were worshiping the temple, they were committing idolatry. That the temple itself was idolatry. That's the implication he just made here. The temple, something made by hands, definition of idolatry in the Jewish religion was something that's made by hands, something that you're going and you're holding tight, that you're worshiping, you're attributing value to, that's not actually God himself. And there's always been this tension, right, between, well, God did live in the temple, but but he doesn't live in buildings um, built by man. And so this is how Stephen's responding to the accusations. Again, notice his big picture, what he's developing here. God's doing something powerful. People are opposing it. And then he turns the tables and says, you are the stiff-necked people, the uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. If you've got a pen, you might want to underline that. That's all marked up in my my Bible, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, of Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We mentioned how Stephen is a bold guy. This is a bold speech. Again, he's not concerned with defending the charges brought against him. He's not real concerned with preaching a sermon all about Jesus. He pretty much takes a long time period to say, I'm sorry, but you found yourself on the wrong side of history. You stand in a long tradition of people who thought they were worshiping God, but in reality were actually fighting against him. And he says why they were doing this, they were stiff-necked, they were stubborn. They didn't want to change. They They weren't flexible. They were uncircumcised in heart. And in their ears, circumcision was this physical sign of commitment to God. Because in their, inside, they weren't actually committed. And he says this, you have resisted the Holy Spirit. You've resisted the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got a theory. And the theory is that most bad guys throughout history, which by itself, you'd realize, right, is kind of a controversial thing. Who writes history? The people who won, right? So we think of the bad guys as the people who lost. Because the other guys won and got to tell us the story about how bad they were. Um, but I think most bad guys, I can't say all bad guys, but, but most of the bad guys throughout history have had somewhat good intentions. I mean, some of them have really thought they were doing the right thing. Have really thought they were, they were contributing to humanity, to contributing some goal that they thought was valuable and worthwhile. And as Stephen gives this speech to the, the Jewish leaders, I want you and I to make sure that we're not always resisting the Holy Spirit. And that one day we won't have a conversation where God goes, you were against me the whole time. Yeah, I know you went to church. I know you thought you were really standing up for me. But, but you were completely opposed to all that I was doing. I want us to be the kind of people who, who maybe wouldn't crucify him if he was here with us. Who would see what God was doing and accept that. Okay, so, so what does that look like? How do we... How do we Um, figure this out. I think that people resist the Holy Spirit in a couple different ways. The first one is this. How you and I can find ourselves in a position where we're resisting the Holy Spirit is primarily, the first way, is by never positioning ourselves to yield to the Holy Spirit. So the analogy here would be um, complaining about a doctor when you never go to their office. Okay? So, So you can't follow the Holy Spirit's leading if you never hear from the Holy Spirit. If you never position yourself to hear from the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit lead? How does he move in us? Well, a couple of different ways. He, he does it through scripture. 
Okay, Christians say that the Spirit inspired the Scriptures. He He created them. He breathed them together for you and I. And not only that, but He continues to illuminate them. So He doesn't just create them and then leave them alone, but these are His words. And so when we read them, He continues to speak to us and move in us and show us their, their worth and their value for us. And His Spirit speaks through worship. And His Spirit speaks through community, through believers, through friends. I think this is really important, this, this community aspect, um, when we come to discerning what is the Holy Spirit's prompting what's not. Have you ever had that question? Like, is the Spirit leading me to do this, or is this my own desires? And the line's really fine. So far, the only way I've found to really get an answer for that, once you've laid it against the Scriptures, is to talk to men and women who listen to the Spirit and ask for their advice. And they can go, sounds a lot like you. <laughs> or they go, that sounds a lot like the Spirit. I would, I would listen to that. So, I mean, real simply, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to, to put yourself in a position to, to hear the Spirit and to be guided by Him. Um, I like to use the example of um, going sailing for walking in the Spirit, okay? Jesus compares the Spirit to wind that you can't control and you don't know where it's coming from, where it's going, things like that. Um, and sailing, if you've ever done it, uh, is something that's kind of hard to do. You've got to get on the lake and you've got to sail and you've got to kind of feel the wind. I mean, that's what's controlling whether you're going anywhere or not, whether you're having a good time or not. And you can't control the wind. You can't press the on button. You can't steer it this way or that way. So you've got to get out on the lake and feel it. You've got to find it. You've got to position yourself in the right place to get caught by it and get guided by it. And the only way to do that is by practice, by learning from other people, time, slow growth. I think the Christian life is a lot like that. And so, so you and I have to position ourselves to hear from him in worship and in scripture and in community, in prayer, in silence. And so we, we first need to open ourselves up to the spirit. And then we need to, he, he calls them stiff-necked people, we need to be a little bit flexible, I think. The Spirit is always interested in doing surprising things. I mean, as far back in the Scriptures as you can look, He does things that you would not have anticipated. And if you're stuck in your ways, you miss out. And you find yourself resisting the Spirit. And perhaps, I think this is the biggest, okay? Um, how you and I would avoid resisting the Spirit, I think would look like this. Obedience. Simple obedience. Here's what I mean. I don't think the Spirit, when He prompts you to do something, okay, so when the Spirit prompts you to um, work on a certain aspect of your life, um, whether it be your speech or the way you treat people, the way you talk to people, um, whether it's um, your life of the Scriptures, how you're reading the Scriptures, how you're praying, when the Spirit's prompting you to change something, to walk in obedience, I don't think He accepts this answer next. I don't think the Spirit gets to come into my life and he goes, hey, Mike, you really need to dig into some prayer. Okay, You've been neglecting this. This is an important part of your life. If you really want to follow after me, you need to start praying with all the energy that you have. I don't think I get to go, no, thank you. What's the next to-do list, right? What's the next in your item? I'd rather go start a homeless ministry. I'd rather go do this or that or this or that. In my experience, and you never want to tie the hands of God, but in my experience, um, what God does is he sits down and he goes, well, wait. Until what? Until you do what I've already told you to do. I think some of us are confused about life and confused about decisions to make and confused about the Spirit leading us and guiding us, when in reality, we've ignored the one thing He's told us to do for the past four years. And He's going, why don't you take that one step? 
Why don't you go? Why don't you go there where I've been calling you? I'm not going to move on to the next thing. So, so I think some of us, um, and just from my own experience, and then from talking to um, you, some of us have a few things that we know we're resisting the Spirit in. That depending on how much we open ourselves up to His leading. I mean, it might just be on Sundays, but we sit down on Sunday morning, we open the scriptures, and something powerful inside you goes, I need to start reading the scriptures. I need to get into the word. And then we go home on Sunday, and we open it up, and it's Charlie Brown's teacher. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Jerusalem, Lebanon, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Thank you. And we come on Sunday... We open it up, and you go, man, I really need to read this on my own. It's so good when Mike explains it. I, need to, I really need to do this on my own at home. <laughs> and we, we don't do it. And then three or four or five years pass, and we wonder why God hasn't moved in our lives, why we're not receiving the blessing, his love and salvation and joy, and why we're not participating in the blessing he's giving out. And here's the danger. Here's the fine line that you tow here. If you consistently do this, you're on a trajectory to stand with the Jewish authorities. Where at the end of your life, God goes, you resisted me at every point. We might go, no, 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 you aren't talking to me that much. You weren't leading me. Go, what about the four years I told you to do one thing and you didn't do it? I think one of the reasons that you and I don't like silence as Christians is because that's where the Spirit speaks very strongly and very clearly. So I can actually trace this back. I mean, actually in my life, trace back the habit I got into of going to sleep with the TV on. Anyone else do that? I've got to have the TV on to go to sleep. I mean, physically, I cannot fall asleep without the TV on. Um, if I'm somewhere outside of my apartment, I will take my iPod, turn on my iTunes, have a show going, plug in my headphones, and go to sleep. I mean, I just physically can't do it. But I can trace it back to high school when I couldn't sleep because I would lay down my bed and the day would start running through my mind. And, and that conversation would run through my mind. And that relationship would run through my mind. And then the conversation I would have to have tomorrow would run through my mind. And then the million conversations that I made up that never came true, if you're anything like me. I can guarantee you I've probably had hundreds of conversations with you that you are not aware of in my mind. And sometimes you upset me, okay? You can be a real jerk in my mind. So what we do is, or what I do, is I turn on the TV. And I don't have to have that conversation. I don't have to deal with those things that like, spring up in my heart when things are silent. If you ever tried to be quiet and not doing something quietly, but just be quiet, you'll find it's exhausting. Why? Because you don't want to listen. You don't want to hear what's there. So we turn it off. And some of us never turn it on. I'm convinced that that, that one of the reasons some of us aren't in our scriptures or praying as much as we should be is because God comes after the same thing every time we open them up. And we're not willing to give it up. Thank you. And so we get stuck in kind of this cycle where you come to church on Sunday, you get convicted, you go home, and you turn on the TV. And then you, you ignore it. It's this dangerous, fine line between finding yourself one day where someone says to you, you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. I've tried to come after you. I've tried to bring you into the community. I've tried to give you love and joy and peace. I've tried to send you out on, on my mission, but from day one, you have resisted everything I've done. 
And we go, no, 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 we were on the team. I went to church. I did, I did all those things. He goes, no, you never listened. You never followed. You never walked by my spirit. That, that one thing, that, those two things I think that the spirit comes after us for, I would say what, what you've got to do is, is you've got to do them. Some things the spirit prompts you for, okay? So again, it could be a, a myriad of things. It could be your speech. It could be um, the things that you consume in media. It could be um, the way you treat other people. It could be, again, the way you pray or lack of prayer or scriptures or lack of scriptures, lack of community, all kinds of things. Some of those things will be easy to obey. I mean, it's just a, it's just a choice. Do I want to do that or do I not want to do that? When you've got to choose, I mean, am I in this thing or am I not? Is this real or is this not? But some of these things are hard. Like, I get that reading your Bible can be a very hard thing to do. I, I honestly get that it can be confusing as mess. Which is why you've got to work at it. Why you got to study. It's why you probably need someone to help you. I've said this before. I didn't learn how to read the Bible by myself. I watched someone else read the Bible for a year before I felt comfortable opening up by myself. Sat down with them every morning, read the Bible together, and I got to see how they read it. I got to hear how they read it. I got to see the questions they asked of it. I got to see the words they highlighted and circled. And slowly but surely, I learned how to sail. I learned how to position myself with just my scriptures and let the wind catch me and listen to it. Same with prayer. Same with community. Same with all the different aspects of our life that the Spirit comes after. So what I want us to do this morning is, is let Stephen's accusation come up against us and, and to lay our lives down uh, on the other side of that. Because I do think if anyone's in danger, it's religious people. Of thinking that they were on the team when in reality God goes, you, you've never been on the team. You, you kind of tried. And then you, you fought me every step of the way. You never did one little thing that I asked you to do. And some of us maybe are confused and we're waiting for that next thing. We're waiting. I haven't experienced God in so long. It's because he's been telling you one consistent message for years. And you've been ignoring it. Because often we don't, we don't like the idols God goes after, right? We want him to go after something easy. Take away my beard. I can shave that. It's gone. But don't take away something I, I love that I don't know if I could live without. When the, which in the end is, is what God really wants, what he's after. He wants to break down your idol so that only he's left. So we've got to be sensitive. There's a quote in here in your worship guide by Gordon Fee. He says, the Holy Spirit plays an essential role in the Christian life. That, that for the scriptures, living the Christian life is living by the Spirit, is walking by the Spirit. It's again, positioning yourself in a place where the Spirit can speak into your life and then responding to it. Walking by the Spirit and letting that bring you to life. So this morning we, we celebrate the fact that God began a master plan in Genesis 12 with Abraham. He consummated it with Jesus on the cross. He's now sent us out with his Spirit to both receive his blessing and to take his blessing. And at the same time, we examine ourselves. And we've got to ask ourselves, are we resisting? Where are we resisting? Why are we resisting? How do we walk forward in obedience? Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. 
even even when things are, are difficult to think about, even when sometimes we feel convicted and we feel um, the weight of where we've failed and where we've run away from you, uh, we want to be reminded of your grace for us. We want to be reminded that, that any kind of stirring in our heart right now is actually your spirit once again coming to us saying, I want you. Come be with me. Come be with my people. Come be in my mission. I haven't given up on you yet, but don't resist me. Don't fight me on this. I need you to do this. I need you to give this up. I need you to follow me here. I need you to confess this. I need you to change this. I need you to add this. And we pray, Father, that you would give us circumcised hearts and ears. We pray that you'd give us um, souls and minds that would receive your, your guidance and that would follow in obedience. We pray that we would be um, people who receive your blessing and then take it out to the world. We love you. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.